Well, hey, good morning. It is so fun to get to all <clears throat> be together in this space. Um, I believe we'll turn the lights on so I can actually see you. But you're going to want a Bible, and even though we are in a brand new place, <clears throat> we are going to do what we do at Grace. We gather to worship, to open God's Word together, and <clears throat> to see how God might be shaping us and forming us to prepare us to go out into the world this week. And so you're going to want a Bible. Uh, you can open it up to Genesis chapter 3. If you need a Bible, we have plenty of them. We have some uh, folks walking around. Just slip up a hand and they will get a Bible in your hand so you can follow along. But last, <clears throat> excuse me, last weekend was a, uh, it was a super fun weekend for us. For those of you that were able to be a part of it, our grand opening night on Sunday night. <clears throat> inviting the community <clears throat> and the other Grace uh, churches to come and to celebrate what God has done and uh, recognizing this has been a long journey for us of well, going all the way back to 2017, praying about what God might have for us next. And then uh, for those of you who are part of the Acorns to Oaks campaign and sacrificed and gave generously so that we could uh, begin the renovation of this old school into our new church home. And groundbreaking two years ago as we gathered in this dilapidated building and buried a Bible in its foundation, opened up to Psalm 1, God's promise that those who build their life on his word will flourish. And then over the next two years, as we faced a, a global pandemic and yet in the same time moved forward so that last Sunday we were able to worship together and to come together. And at the same time, all along, we've said that we don't believe that, that, that coming, the completion of these buildings is the end of our journey. We actually believe it's the beginning. It's the beginning of a new season of God inviting us, increasing our capacity to be his people and to make an impact in our community. And we've been asking this question, God, how do we serve our neighbors? How do we engage our neighborhoods? How do we, how do we live into this identity that you've given us, pursuing your heart for the restoration of all things? Now, several years ago, uh, there was an organization here in Walton County, uh, Habitat for Humanity. And just a block over on Turner Street, they built a couple homes. Some of y'all were a part of that. And, uh, and it's been many years that, since Habitat has done anything in our community. Well, it just so happens that the same year that we are building our buildings and launching and increasing our space in this community, Habitat reformed in Walton County. And in fact, uh, they are building a third house on Turner Street, which also just happens to be the next street over, our next door neighbors. And so it felt really appropriate that not only are we building a building to worship in for our church and to, be, to make disciples, to reach the next generation, but also that we would engage our neighborhood and build space for others that are in need. And so we are partnering with Habitat. And next weekend will be our, oops, sorry, will be our first... Um, our first build day, we need 15 volunteers that are able to show up and be a part of that from 8.30 to 2.30 on Saturday. Uh, if you've ever done a Habitat Day, you know that you don't have to have any special skills. They will teach you everything you need to know how to be safe, how to not cut your hand off with a saw or smash your finger with a thumb. Smash your thumb with a hammer is what I was trying to say there, uh, which actually I can't promise the second one. That's more up to you than to them. But uh, anyone can show up and be a part of that. Obviously, if you have skills uh, towards building, that would be greatly appreciated. But uh, you can, to, to get that registration link, all you have to do is uh, text the word Habitat 
to that number right there, 678-931-8715, if you're interested in being a part of that, and you can register to sign up. Our first day, like I said, is this coming Saturday, and it will be a framing day. And then at the end of October, we will have a, a second day that Grace Monroe is responsible for, and that is when we will be painting the outside of the house. And so uh, wanting us as a church, let's engage, let's be present, let's serve our neighbors. Uh, we've said all along that this is not about us, and uh, we're not building for us. We are not, uh, they're not buildings that are, that are for us simply to enjoy, but we believe that God is mobilizing us for the sake of this city, for the sake of this community. At the same time, we don't believe that this building is the church. We don't believe the service that we come to is the church. You, I, we are the church. And we are meant to be God's people, encountering his power, carrying his presence with us into the world around us. And so with that, as we launched into this new season and as we began to to uh, remember where we've come from and what God is inviting us into next. So we felt like it was appropriate to go back to the beginning of our story and not the beginning of Grace Monroe's story, not even the beginning of the American church story or even the beginning of the church 2,000 years ago, but the very beginning of the story because we believe it's in that original origin story, the story of Genesis, that we find the foundation that the rest of the Bible is built on an understanding for this life that God created us to live and that Jesus invites us back into. And so we spent the last several weeks looking at these first few chapters of Genesis. We haven't made it very far. We're only in chapter 3 so far. But that important question, all right, God, what is this life you created us for? I mean, it's, it's amazing that on one hand, we can look at the world around us. We can stand on a mountaintop, on a trail, or watch the sunset, or rise, or dip our feet in the ocean, and be absolutely in awe of the beauty and the grandeur of God's creation. And yet, it doesn't take a second to scroll through our so- social media feed, to tune in to the 24-hour non-stop news cycle and realize real quickly how screwed up this world is. The brokenness, the pain, the violence, the loss, the struggle, the hopelessness. And so how is it that on one hand we can look at a world that is so beautiful and ordered and just awe-inspiring and yet on the other hand look and go, it's screwed up and broken and, and tragic. How do we get here? God, this can't be what you intended. And it's actually in this chapter, in Genesis chapter 3, that the beginnings of that answer begin to take shape. Before we actually get into chapter 3, we remember that in the first two chapters, God is bringing the world into creation. He is the creator. It is his world. He is the king. And he speaks, and the universe is brought into reality. His words create worlds. That he brings light out of darkness, order out of chaos, life from barrenness. That he's good, and he is powerful, and he is active, and he is present and available. That's Genesis chapter 1. In the pinnacle of his creation, male and female, man and woman, that he created 
in his image. And by doing so, gave them an identity that they were going to be the ones that reflected his goodness out to the rest of the world. That lived in relationship, in partnership with him. And not just an identity as those created in the image of God, but also in relationship. In relationship with one another, vulnerable, intimate, completely known, and completely loved. Identity and relationship. But also, God looked at this man and this woman living in his identity, living in relationship with him and one another, and then gave them responsibility, authority, a role, a calling. That yes, his voice brought the world into being, but he gave them voice to carry his authority, to connect with him and with one another. He gave them a role to play. In fact, as Genesis 2 kind of zooms in on creation, Genesis 1, this broad brush sweeping expanse of the cosmos brought into being. Genesis 2 is this intimate account of God planting a garden and in that garden placing man and woman. That garden, a picture of his kingdom where his rule, his reign, his will was in total effect. And in fact, the picture of the garden in Genesis chapter 2 is this picture, this It carries this idea that the goodness of God's kingdom in the garden was intended to be carried by man and woman out to the ends of the earth. That what they experienced in the garden with God wasn't meant to stay in the garden. It was actually meant that it was packed with potential to carry that out, to advance his kingdom to the rest of the world in partnership with him, representing him in relationship with one another. He created them with identity. He created them for relationship. He created them with responsibility. And he created them to live in his rhythms. And rest and work. And rhythm with his heart. Day and night, weeks and seasons. To live connected to the God of this universe. Genesis chapter 2, in this garden, the Bible tells us that God planted all kinds of trees. And all those trees had amazing fruit. And God said that you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, to enjoy it. This is a picture of flourishing, of abundance, more than enough. I have what you need. I will take care of you. I will provide for you. I will go with you. I will teach you. I will guide you. It's all kinds of trees. I asked for just a big basket of fruit. Bananas and apples, oranges, kiwi. And then whatever this little thing is that I never figured out, but I'm sure it tastes amazing. All kinds of fruit. And God says, you are free. You are free to eat, to enjoy But then God, in the midst of all of that goodness, he plants and names two specific trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The first, the tree of life, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago. I chose for our tree of life, I figure we're in Georgia, so it's a peach tree. It makes sense, right? And the tree of knowledge of good and evil... The Bible will later call it the tree of wisdom. 
for no reason at all. It's a pear tree, just in case you're curious. Don't think it was actually a pear tree, nor did I think that was actually a peach tree, but I think it's fruit that we don't have anymore. But God said, you can eat from any tree. The tree of life was totally in bounds. Eat, enjoy. From the beginning, God's desire for humanity was that they would live life and live life to the fullest. Eat from the tree of life all you want, God says. You're free. You're free. Enjoy it. Go with me. And in fact, with the tree of life, I believe God was making a statement, a declaration that would carry forward for the rest of the Bible and all of the rest of human history. And with that statement, with the freedom that came with the tree of life, God was declaring, I love you. I love you. I want what's best for you. I know you. I will take care of you. I will provide for you. I will go with you. I will raise you up into the fullness of maturity. I want you to flourish. I want you to thrive. I want you to experience abundance. I want you to, have, to, to delight in my world and in one another. I want you to have purpose and meaning, identity and calling. I want you to have good work to do that you're proud of. I want to give you responsibility and authority. I want to see your voice magnified through this world. I want you to discover the hidden delights in my creation. Life into the abundance. I love you, God says. I love you. I choose you. But with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I believe God is asking a question. Will you trust me? Will you trust that I know what's best for you? Will you trust that I have your best intention in mind? That I'm good. That I'm for you. That I will give you what you need, when you need it, as you need it. That I will lead you along a good path. Will you trust me? That I do, in fact, love you. It wasn't so much that God didn't want them to have wisdom. That wasn't the question. The question was, where are they going to go to get it? Who is going to decide for Adam and Eve what is good and what is bad? What is right and what is wrong? What is beautiful and what is evil? Who's going to tell them how to navigate this life? Will they keep looking to the one that created them? Will they keep listening to the one that made them? Will you trust me? Don't go to that tree. Why? Because you don't need it. I'm not holding out on you because I don't want you to have something good. No, no, you don't need this. Why? Because you have me. I'm the one with you. I'm the one that, that knows what's best for you. I love you. Will you trust me? First two chapters of the Bible. The voices of God and mankind interacting in this wonderful, good, beautiful, potential-packed creation. But in Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to a new character. A fourth voice enters the scene. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. The serpent. Later on, we will find out that he's also called the father of lies. The accuser of the brethren. And Revelation 12, 9 makes it clear that that serpent was actually Satan. The one that rose up against God to claim God's throne for himself. 
but only God is God. And Satan was cast down. And we find in the Bible this ongoing war declared by Satan against God and everything made in God's image and who was made first and foremost in God's image? Mankind. So here comes the serpent, more crafty, deceitful, treacherous, shrewd is that word there, than anything else that God had made. And that fourth voice enters the story with this question. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say? Now, did God say that? No, God said the opposite. So the serpent is going, did God really say, I mean, look at all this amazing fruit, and God said you can't have any of it? Did God really say that? And so the first point of attack of Satan into humanity, of his voice distorting the picture of God's goodness, was to question God's word. Did God really say? And this isn't just an interesting story, a children's tale, an old myth from years and years ago. This is actually a story that we find ourselves in right now. Because the reality is, is that the enemy's attack, the greatest temptation in your life right now, the things that you're wrestling with that are undermining your life, your relationships, your ability to flourish and to thrive, is that same question, will you trust me, and that same temptation to doubt God's word. Now, the reality is that for most people, it's not an intentional rebellion against God's word. Most people just don't even know what God's word is. But Eve knew. And Satan came with that question of God's word. Did God really say? And Eve answers, no, no, no. We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say... You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you'll die. Now, did God say that? Not exactly, did he? God did tell them that eat from the tree of life, but, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and if you eat it, you will die. But he actually didn't say anything about touching it. And so Eve begins to get distorted, confused with God's word. She doesn't mention that God had said, you are free. And instead, what she does talk about is a greater restriction than even God imposed. It's the same lie that we are tempted to believe when God is calling us into true abundance and freedom, but instead what we focus on is restriction. Now, the reality is it may have come from a good place. Maybe Adam and Eve pulled aside and they were like, hey, listen, listen, we got one rule here. We got one job. Don't blow it. Just don't eat from the tree. And they're like, you know what? It'd probably be better if we just don't even touch that tree. So maybe it was just healthy boundaries, but those healthy boundaries quickly became a greater restriction. I think about my own children and trying to give healthy boundaries as a parent and just trying to keep it simple. We were joking about this last night with cell phones. Like in our house, there's just a couple rules about cell phones. One, they don't go upstairs into your bedrooms. And two, you don't, get to, you don't have them after not, at, late at night. That's it, right? Easy enough. Don't take them into your bedrooms and not late at night. And so it's always amazing when somehow 
something gets found in a bedroom or late at night. And you're sitting back going, wait a second, there's two rules. That's it. I mean, it's not hard. There's only two rules. And can you imagine God sitting back going, there's one. <laughs> there's one rule I'm asking you. That's it. Everything else is free. Everything else is yours. Enjoy it. Delight in it. Have fun. Just this one thing. But in the questioning of God's word, very quickly, it went from freedom to restriction. And so the serpent continues. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. The first lie in the Bible. There's many more to come, but that's just the first one. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So if the serpent first questions God's word, the next thing he questions is God's character. You're not going to die. God doesn't know what he's talking about. In other words, you can't trust him. He's lying to you. Because he knows that there's actually something good out there that he's holding out on for you. He's trying to keep you from something. I mean, he doesn't want you to be like him. Now, the irony of that statement is, how did God create Adam and Eve? What was their core identity? Those made in the image of God. In other words, they were already like God. They already had what Satan was promising. What Satan was offering was an alternative way to get what their hearts desired, apart from God. You can't trust him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's holding out on you. In other words, he doesn't really love you. Because if he loved you, he would want you to have this thing. If he loved you, he, he, he would want you to, to, to experience this. He's keeping it from you. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't know what's best for him. You can't trust him and he doesn't love you. And so now Eve stands in a place of decision. God gave her a voice. But with those two trees, God was also giving her a choice. Will you trust me? Will you choose me? Because it is the power of cho choice that actually gives us the capacity to love. Without choice, there is no love. I mean, think about weddings, marriage vows. When somebody declares their vows before God and before man, that marriage covenant, they're not stating how they feel about that person. We, we use the word love in all kinds of different ways that don't actually mean what love means. I mean, we should use other words. Not I love you, but like I desire you. I want you. I kind of like you. You're neat. But I love you means I choose you. I choose you. The language of weddings isn't about present day emotion. It's about, it's about a promise to future choice that I will continue to choose you for better or for worse, whether you're sick or healthy, whether we're rich or we're poor. I choose you. And from this day forward, I will continue to choose you. 
no matter what. That's what a wedding covenant is all about. Why? Because love is the constant choice. I will choose connection over disconnection. I will choose forgiveness over bitterness. I, I will choose to believe the best over you, of you. I love you. I choose you. Will you trust me? Will you choose me? And so Satan comes and he begins in those two places that are the same temptations we face. To doubt God's word and to doubt God's character. You can't trust him because he doesn't love you. So when the woman saw that the fruit of that tree was good for, good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Honestly, some of the saddest lines in the entire Bible. Remember, it's God who's at the center of this story. And it's God who, who brings man and woman and sets them in the center of his plan, in the center of his God, kingdom, in the center of his garden. And they're intended to walk with God out from that place, from that center with God. But watch what happens to the perspective of the woman. First, she moves from listening, and, listening to and, and looking to God to know what is best. And instead, begins to listen to and look to the serpent to figure out how to truly live. But then it's no longer even about the serpent, is it? Because Eve saw for herself that it looked good for food and it was pleasing to the eye. And man, with it, you can gain wisdom. And so she took and she ate. And for us, the same temptation is true. Yes, the temptation of, of the serpent, the lies of this world that would tell us that, that you can't trust God, you can't trust his word, he's holding out on you. That's up to you to make life work on your own. That you deserve what you, de what you feel like you need and you deserve to have it right now. In fact, I think one of the biggest lies out there in our culture is that, is that I need what I want right now. And if I can't get it right now, it's not worth having. Which is interesting if you just take a split second to even think about that. Because we know from experience that everything that's actually worth having takes time. Healthy marriages, good relationships, a thriving career. And yet we live in a world that tells us that if I can't have it right now, the things I feel like I need right now, it's, it's not worth having. And I'll find a different way or a different thing to fulfill this thing that I'm craving. It's the same thing that was happening in the garden. God wanted them to have wisdom. God wanted them to have full life. 
but they went on their own to figure out how to get it. Eve looked, and from her perspective, this seems like a good idea. And so many of us on our own look at the world around us from our perspective, our limited knowledge, our limited experience, and decide for ourselves, this is what I need. This is what's best for me. This is what's going to make me happy, fulfilled, successful, satisfied. And when she looks away from God, turns away from his voice, begins to entertain the voice of the enemy, and then turns to her own observation and interpretation, what does she do? She takes and she eats. Now, fellas, before you get all up in arms at this evil, seductress Eve that ruined all of our lives, I think it's important that we know what the Hebrew actually says there. It intentionally adds this little phrase when it's talking about this interaction between Adam and Eve and the fruit. That she gave some to her husband, who was with her. And the Hebrew there for the word with is literally at the word at her elbow. In other words, Adam was there for the entire conversation. At any point, he could have spoken up and said, whoa, 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 serpent, you don't know what you're talking about. In fact, he didn't have to say anything. He could have just grabbed the dang snake by the neck and smashed it on a rock. That would have changed the story right there, wouldn't it have? But he allows his wife to entertain this conversation with, with a liar who's, who's undermining the voice of God in their lives and doesn't say anything. And in fact, well, I guess I'll eat some fruit too. And at Walton County 2021, I don't know that we're that much different. In our own passivity, in our own silence, our avoidance of hard conversations and stepping forward into the ways God's inviting us to lead, we let life continue. And we let the world devolve around us. It wasn't just Eve's failure. It was Adam's silence. Adam's sin. And they both chose to walk away from the God that knows them, made them, and loves them. We said that God created them to live in rhythm with him. And so God shows up. And it doesn't carry any idea that this is a random occurrence. All of a sudden, God shows up out of nowhere. It actually has this idea that this is a regular thing, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In other words, that they were intended to walk with God. In fact, if they had just waited a minute, if they just gave it a few minutes, which honestly is about the best advice on temptation I can give you, go for a walk and get away from it, whatever it is. Because sometimes the cool of the day can give you a fresh perspective. But they don't. They eat. God shows up a few minutes later. And in this place that was meant to be a garden of peace and joy, delight, flourishing, thriving, fully known and fully loved, all of a sudden it becomes a place of fear and shame. And hiding. 
And so they hear God and they dive into cover. They take some fig leaves to cover themselves, to hide their shame. Because the Bible says they can now see. But what can they see that they couldn't see before? It's not like they were walking around blind and all of a sudden they ate the fruit and now they could see the world as it really was. Now, what are they seeing? They're seeing themselves for the first time. Fragile, vulnerable, needy, alone. Because all of a sudden they looked away from the God that knows them and cares for them, that would provide for them and protect them. That would give them what they need and would walk with them and guide them, would teach them and grow them. And instead now they're looking at themselves. And if it's up to me in this fragile, pathetic little body that I have to survive in this crazy, chaotic world, man, we're in trouble. And if it's up to me to make my life work, and it's up to me to get what I need, and it's up to me to make my marriage work and to know how to parent and, and to have a job, if it's up to me to, to figure this whole thing out, yeah, that's scary. And all of a sudden, this big, powerful God that I just turned my back on shows up. That now I'm questioning whether I can even trust him. Does he actually love me? And surely he doesn't love me now. There's no way he's going to choose me now. I just did the one thing he told me not to do. And so my guilt and my shame, I am broken. I am a mess. And I don't deserve love. And I don't deserve belonging. I don't deserve to be here. I'm on my own. I'm naked. God, get away from me. And so they hide. And behind their pathetic little attempts to cover. You know, it's actually interesting. Zach told us at staff meeting a few weeks ago. He mentioned it in worship. I never knew this. Actually, I didn't believe him when he told me I had to Google it. And if it's on Google, it's got to be true. But fig leaves, actually, if you, if you rub them on your skin for too long, will actually irritate and end up causing blisters and pain. So in other words, the very thing that they were using to cover their shame would actually end up causing them more pain later. Now, does that sound familiar? All our pathetic little attempts to cover our shame, to make our lives work, that end up in the long run just chafing our hide, so to speak, being a real pain in the, you know what? But this is what's amazing. That in a chapter so full of sadness and despair, God's grace shines through. Because what happens when God re-enters the story? He asks a question. Where are you? Where are you? I never left you. In fact, right now, God says, I'm not turning my back on you. That God is the one that shows up going looking for his lost children. That from the first pages of the Bible, it's God who pursues. It's God who makes a way. It's God who initiates. And despite their failure, despite their flaws, despite their brokenness and the mess that they made, God doesn't turn his back. He doesn't deny. Instead, he goes looking for his lost children. It's his grace that carries them. Unfortunately, Adam and his fear and his shame and his guilt calls out, I heard you in the garden, God, and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. And every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve from that point forward says the same thing with our lives. 
I heard you. But I saw myself. And I was afraid. Because I'm vulnerable. And so I hid. And I just wonder even right now, what are the ways that you're hiding from God? What are the ways that you're trying to cover your shame with our attempts to make life work? And then God asks this powerful question. Who told you that? Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were vulnerable? Who told you you were unprotected? God's saying, I didn't tell you that. And then he asks this pointed question, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And if hiding is the first way that we deal with our shame, the second that has, we've uh, faithfully carried on for every generation since, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me the fruit. And yeah, I ate it. We hide to cover our shame and we blame to deal with the pain of our shame. What feels unbearable to us, my own brokenness, my own failures, my own flaws that I can't take when I see in the mirror, you know the easiest way to deal with it? It's her fault. It's his fault. It's my boss's fault. It's my children's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's this world's fault. It's the Democrats' fault. It's the Republicans' fault. It's them. They made me do it. But notice the way that God even asked the question. Have you eaten from the fruit of the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Adam, freaking own it, he's saying. Just come back to me. Let's deal with this. But the first, Adam, hiding and ashamed and immediately enters blame into the scene. It's them. They made me do it. Eve's no better. It's the serpent. The interesting thing about Adam's blame is he's not just blaming Eve. He's, in a way, blaming God, isn't he? It's that woman that you gave me. In fact, God, that brilliant idea of yours to take my rib sure backfired, God. And all of a sudden, this thing that was like the, the, the premier, the prime aspect of, the, of Adam's life, this beautiful, valuable thing, the pinnacle of creation, like that becomes a source of bitterness and pain and regret and failure. Next week, we're gonna, we'll continue on in this chapter and into the next as we begin to see the impact on the world and on our relationships. That this fateful decision of turning, of answering that question, will you trust me, with a resounding no. But I want to end with this. We see the grace of God when he shows up in the garden looking for his lost children. But remember those fig leaves. It's interesting because God never mentions them. It completely ignores all their attempts to fix the problem on them for themselves. But instead, verse 21, 
The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And what we have in that verse is actually the first death mentioned in the Bible. The shed blood of an innocent animal to cover the sin of mankind. And that same pattern will carry forward to the rest of the Bible. That blood would be shed of the innocent to cover the sin and the failure of mankind. Generations later, it would be Moses calling his people out of slavery into freedom. And that night that they were to be delivered, God would tell them to take a spotless lamb, an innocent animal, and shed its blood and put its blood on the covering of its doorpost so that when they walked out the next morning, that blood would cover them. And they'd walk through that doorway of death into salvation and freedom. And it would be many, many generations later that God himself would clothe himself with the skin of humanity, taking on flesh. And Jesus, the visible representation of an invisible God, the one in whom all the fullness of God dwelled, would take on the same sin and failure of mankind. And finally, that innocent blood that was shed in the third chapter of Genesis. That animal whose skin covered the failure of Adam and Eve, it wasn't sufficient. That lamb whose blood was shed to cover the, the doorway on the way out of the exodus into the promised land, it wasn't sufficient. All of the sacrifices in the temple for thousands of years, none of them were sufficient until God would finally enact his plan that he intended from the beginning, that it would be through humanity that his purposes for his kingdom would be moved forward. In fact, to act apart from a human would be to unravel the very fabric of creation. It had to be a man. But the only man that could do it was God himself, the perfect man, Jesus. And Jesus would gather with his disciples there in an upper room just before being led to the cross. And that tree of life would become a tree of death. And Jesus would take the bread of Passover, that symbol of God's deliverance, and he would break it. And he would say, this is my body given for you. Take it and eat it. And every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus would take that cup of the Passover that reminder of that innocent lamb that was shed to cover, to deliver. That reminder of that first animal that was killed to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. And he would say, this cup, this is my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. And every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. It would be Jesus that would fulfill the picture of that first failure of humanity. The blood that would be shed to cover our failures, to cover our shame, so that we no longer have to live in hiding. We no longer have to be defined by our guilt, our broken relationships, our lost calling. But Jesus invites us back. 
Because just as that question still stands, will you trust me? So does that declaration. I love you. I choose you, God says. And so as we worship, we realize that we're in a new space. And we can do whatever we want here. And there's some aspects of worship, of corporate worship, that has been important since the time of Jesus. The coming together around the word and the sacrament, the elements of communion that remind us of the presence and the forgiveness of Christ. And so you'll see on the tables, the elements of communion are set up. And instead of distributing them out, we're inviting you to come to the table as an act of receiving the grace of God revealed in Jesus. We have the kneeling benches here, so we invite you. And so we're still, the elements are there. We still are uh, being COVID-friendly, and you'll see there's the individual um, elements for you to take. But I invite you, whether you do so at the table or you come and kneel here as an act of worship, we believe that our physical posture is an important part of our worship. It's why we raise hands and praise. It's why we kneel in confession. But to take that communion and to come kneel before God and let him search your heart. Lord, is there any way that I've wandered away from you? That I've listened to other voices besides yours? That my eyes have looked to other things to figure out where life comes from? Lord, is there any way you're calling me back to yourself? And in that confession, that, that acknowledgement of our sin, our own failure and brokenness, we receive the forgiveness of Christ. His blood shed on the cross so that you could be set free and restored into relationship with him. And so we invite you to kneel. We invite you to take communion. We invite you to receive the love and the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you that you showed up in that garden however long ago calling out to your lost son and daughter. And in the same way, right now, Lord, you show up calling to your lost sons and daughters. Where are you? Who told you that? And so, Lord, I pray, will you just call to mind any place that our hearts have been turned away from you? That we place ourselves on the throne of our life. That we've walked away from you. Will you give us the courage to confess that to you, God, so that we might receive your forgiveness, washed clean and purified, and invited into a whole new way of living, restored into relationship with you. So I pray for each one here, God. If there's anyone that has not opened their heart to surrender their life to you, I pray that even right now, this morning, Lord, they would confess their sins and confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ, you are Lord, and believe in their heart that you died, but that you rose again, and that you invite us to live life with you forever beginning today. And it's in your precious and powerful name we pray.
Amen.